0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, length, depth, and width, platonic forms get together and turn up their nose at the platonic form of wobbliness, forcing the poor rejected archetype to seek out bad company with chaos and bedlam and turmoil and form a prog rock band. Wobbliness plays a mean to Gerardu, by the way. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of O'Leary Correa's Son of the Black Sword, All Right Now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We have part one of a two-part interview with John Ringo and Mike Massa this time, talking about their new entry, the black tide rising series the book is called river of night this one is the follow-up to the valley of the shadows which turned our attention from steve smith and his daughters in the original few books of the series now to tom smith steve's brother and his cohorts who are dealing with the zombie apocalypse in new york and now across the eastern u.s in this one tom and his forces escape from new york and are headed for site blue Uh, It's in West Virginia and ultimately the Tennessee River TVA dams where there's a chance to restart civilization. But along the way, the group faces stiff resistance from rogue humans as well as zombie hordes. It's a really riveting account of a quest through chaos with some very cool heroes facing very stiff odds. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The July mass market paperbacks are now at booksellers everywhere. These include Monster Hunter memoirs, Saints, by Larry Correa and John Ringo. There's a larval great old one growing in power day by day under the city of New Orleans. If Chad Gardner can't convince the powers that be to get involved, the entire world is going to fall under the power of this nastiest of nasties. Also out in Mass Market is Avalanche, book five of The Secret World Chronicle by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Gaguer. Ultima Thule has been destroyed, but somehow the Thulians mounted an even bigger force to destroy the Medis, the superhero-like main characters of the series. And it's up to the heroes of Echo and CCCP to save the world. The Avalanche has begun. And finally out in Mass Market in July is A Fistful of Elven Gold by Alex Stewart. When war erupts, the fate of a kingdom rests in the hands of a bounty hunting gnome. If only he could decide which side to take. A Fistful of Elven Gold by Alex Stewart. Avalanche, book five of The Secret World Chronicle by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and and Veronica Gaguerre. And Monster Hunter Memoir Saints by Larry Correa and John Ringo are now available at booksellers everywhere as mass market paperbacks. And hey, when a book comes out in mass market, the ebook prices go down. So check these out. This is part one of a two-part interview with John Ringo and Mike Massa, authors of River of Night. Part two will be available next time on the podcast.
2: I want to welcome John Ringo and Mike Massive back to the podcast. Hi. How's it going, guys? Hey, we
3: actually both made it this time. And I've got a
4: fresh cup of coffee, so I'm good.
2: <laughs> hey,
4: Tony. Hey, John. Glad to be here. I got my Diet Coke lined up.
2: Very excellent. Very excellent. Okay. Well, uh, John, let me just uh, talk a little bit about your all's backgrounds. Um, John Ringo brings fighting to life, as we say in the bio um, on uh, – River of Night. He is the New York Times, and it's true. He is the New York Times bestselling author of the Legacy of the Aldenada series, the Paladin of Shadow series, the Special Circumstances series, and Looking Glass series. Uh, probably a couple other series in there that uh, we could mention. John has co-authored four novels in the Empire Man series also with um, New York Times bestselling author David Weber and is the co-author of three novels in Larry Correa's bestselling Monster Hunter International series, the Monster Hunter Memoir novels, um, which uh, one of the mass markets on that is, I think the final one is out this month as well, um, which is, what? Uh, It's the New Orleans one, right? Yeah.
3: That's one of the two New Orleans
2: John Science based Zombie Apocalypse Black Tide Rising series includes Under a Graveyard Sky, To Sail a Darkling Sea, Islands of Rage and Hope, Strands of Sorrow, and The Valley of Shadows, co authored with Mike Massa, um, as well as Story Anthology Black Tide Rising, co edited with Gary Poole. He's a veteran of the 82nd Airborne and lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mike Massa has lived a diverse and adventurous life, including stints as a Navy SEAL officer. I thought you were you were an officer, huh?
3: Yeah, I was. I was.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's too bad. Anyway, an international investment banker and internet uh, technologist, which is what he does now, he counts his greatest adventure, in addition to being a, an excellent writer, um, he counts his greatest adventures as marriage and parenthood. Masa is currently a university cyber security researcher, consulted by governments, Fortune 500 companies, and net and high net worth families on issues of privacy, resilience, and disaster recovery. He lives he lived outside the U.S. for many years, plus military deployments, and has traveled to over 80 country countries. Uh, Mike lives in Virginia. Um, And out now at booksellers everywhere is the sequel to The Valley of Shadows, which is called The River of Night. And uh, right now, it is the number one best-selling science fiction hardcover in America. So congratulations on that, guys.
3: Yay! Thank you, thank you.
2: Very exciting. Yeah, it's good. I I mean, I've
3: I've written a lot of stuff, but uh, now that's on Bookscan, which is called the Nielsen book. Um, and since bookscan has come out, I have had the three books be number one that were novels. Um, the last, uh, missed one of the anthologies in this in shared world. Voice fall was actually a uh, number one hardcover of of book, um, but it's uh, it's pretty hard to get number one hardcover.
2: Yeah, it's very excellent. Um, and, and it's a damn good book. I have to say, um, (laughs) I'm, I'm often, I often tout books that I think are pretty good, but this one I was like, wow, this is kind of riveting. Um, when somebody says you can't put it down, this one uh, really, really uh, fits that bill.
3: When you've written a whole bunch of books halfway through the book, you're already thinking about the next story. Um, (laughs) and, uh, so, by the time a book actually comes out, we turn this in. Mike, when, when, when did River of Night finally get turned in? We
4: were working on it. I'll, January yeah, of I think, 2018. Yeah, we turned this in, I don't want to say in January, February. But I have to go back and check my notes. But but when we were really working
3: on it, it was like the year before that. Right. I mean, when we were at CBC and we decided to split it up, that was like january of 2018. yeah that was
4: yeah that was quite a while that that was obviously before Valley of Shadow went into editing, so it had to be that it had to be that long ago at least,
3: yeah, so when we were really working hard on this it was like a year and a half um, <laughs> so some of these questions i I'm like, well, I remember who that character was,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> well, I understand. Um, maybe you could, uh, but uh, maybe you could set up the world a little bit, um, because uh, what is
3: it? it's about H seventy three, right? H seventy three is the virus which was uh, uh, it was a genetically programmed virus that was designed to create a twenty eight days later type zombie environment. Um, a zombie environment with people with the insane violent, around tech, Texas. Uh, it's kind of a bizarre virus in that it spreads both uh, in an airborne fashion also in the blood path. Um, and uh, there is there are a couple of pathogens out there that sort of do it, but not the way that it doesn't. Um, and after the first book came out, I got word back that uh, some of the people, some of the senior epidemiologists, Epidemiological people, CDC, took a look at it, and kind of went, oh hell,
0: because they were
3: looking at it and going, yeah, um, forget this being something, uh, you know, might possibly occur at some point in the future, especially the technology now. So, came up with, with a new idea in biowarfare that CDC US is really did not like. But that's what that's what the virus called H7D three. And the the H seven D three a lot of people have told me, you know, H seven D three, that's not how it would actually be. Uh, that's not how it would actually mark. Uh, Mike actually talked more about how virus came. But H seven D three actually kind of a joke. Um, seven and three are the most commonly used numbers people are just pulling random numbers. So the seven and the three are intentionally just random numbers and it's a joke because they're the most common. Um, uh. H is H is the type of virus that uh, uh, that's actually not some validity but the D-virus strain, God, I can't remember what that, What what is it? the
4: D-virus strain is, Mike? Do you remember it? I, I do. We actually, uh, we were looking for things that would be very fictional. So we stayed away from uh, the N-series of viruses, best known right. of which is H5N1, avian influenza, or uh, H1N1, uh, better known as swine flu. Um, or each one in three, again another very uh dangerous pathogen. So we we picked D um literally out of our fourth point of contact in order to make it very fictional. No no no, as no. I D was a uh, – uh no uh D virus
2: is
3: actually uh uh Oh god, it's like a it's like a tobacco rust virus. It it only affects
2: well, we you know, we could always call uh Rob Hampson and conference him in and see if he could tell us.
3: H seventy three was although it's you know it's a very serious book and everything else, I actually created it as calling in H seventy three was specifically kind of a joke. And it God, it's such a nerdy joke. Okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well what um what is it what does it do? Um yeah, in the uh, context of the book, what, what, why is it, uh, I mean, I know, but go ahead and tell us again. Yeah.
3: If you catch it as a flu, uh, uh, what it does is it, it goes through an initial flu stage and it spreads. And then after the initial flu stage, the, it produces secondary pathogen, which essentially shuts down, uh, higher thought processes, in, increases depression, causes Itchiness on the skin, um, which makes people strip off their clothes. One of my problems has always been traditional zombie movies and books, uh, or this type of biological zombie movie and book, is that biological processes will continue. And modern clothing is very tough. And so if people have clothing on, I can understand why they do it in movies, because you don't want to have a whole bunch of people on the ground. But the reality is that is if uh, people who have lost all capabilities, Go through the kind of complex process they go through. They're, they get dumped, they don't take their clothes off, they're going to get recklessly action. So they strip their clothes off and they get wildly violent and they go around attacking people and chewing on them and all this sort of ghoulish stuff. Um, and in the first book, the first part of the first book, Fall, under Graveyard Sky, you see the, the fall in New York. where totally normal people who are totally rational, very rapidly become irrational, and then strip them off and then attack the people. Um, and so the first book in this sort of spin-off series, Valley of Shadows, overlaps New York version, portion of Under Sky. Um and, uh, it essentially expands that from the point of view of one of the secondary characters, who um, yeah. who is the head of, who is the head of security for a big bank. And it was the brother of the original main character of Fury, Tom, uh, Steve Smith, um, who is the father of the family. Tom Smith is a nature character. In the first half of the first book, the idea was okay. What happened? We to so did Valley of Shadows, very much overlapping. The first uh, and, yeah. the River of Night, River of Night covers what happened. To Tom says Mary Van She as they could on to, to, towards where the areas, a place they are looking for hope. Um, and the problem that covers the whole book.
2: What is, as far as uh Tom and Steve's background, um, they're Australian, right, originally. Why are they in the U.S. and and what makes them so good at at surviving the zombie apocalypse?
3: Well, there's a couple of things. One of the things is never um. Uh, Tom and Steve Smith are the twin sons of a manager, or not the twins, two sons of, uh, and the only two children of a manager of Australian sheep station, which is located on the coast, uh, vaguely near Perth, Australia. Uh, it's actually on the intersection of 7E in uh, where it's located, or near that is, um, so they were, they were raised, uh, as, as boys, uh, as Sheep ranchers. And, but the thing was, that their dad managed the station, but that wasn't something. He didn't own it. Um, so it wasn't something. And, uh, by the way, a station is the Australian term for a ranch. Um, and so there was no guarantee that they were going to be able to do it. Uh, so both of them joined the Australian Tom Smith, uh, the, joined the uh, uh both of them joined the Australian Army. Tom Smith went on to become a member of the Australian SAS. Uh, and Steve Smith joined the army and he did Tom Smith I remember correctly went in an officer, Steve Smith went got out, got his degree in history, and, met and married Stacy Sonnenberg, who was an American in Australia. And the decision at some point made, don't ask me why, moved to the United States, and, uh, and Steve then became high school. Um, one of the he and Dates, Stephen Stacey shared uh, an understanding that the world is not always perfect. That the civiliz- this complex civilization we have built up, uh, is robust in some ways. But it's also very very fragile. Enough. And so they were always prepared for not so much the complete collapse of civilization, but prepared. They were prepared for the all the issues along. I mean, they're the sort of people that feed each love You They don't really have to do anything for them. They do come through or, okay. The Smiths were prepared. They always had toilet fluid issues, generators, food. Um, but they also had all of the plans. They really went for to a um, Tom Smith and the Hunt had Dutch a time FAS and uh, uh, Mike actually built a career for him, having do with that work uh professional security, private military contracts Um unlike his younger brother he never did. Um and uh and so he has built his career until so he's now she of security purity for a uh, major company. which is called Give You an Idea. Um and I I wrote I wrote the first four books and I wrote then is it Bank of the Americas, Mike? Is that, is that what I called it? Yep. Mike, is there, yeah. Did I call it Bank of yep, the Americas? Yep, absolutely. Okay. That's it. Because um, I didn't want to have an actual that um, But these guys are, uh, they're farmers. I mean, they're, they're ranch hands. They were raised ranch hands. Um, they were raised around guns, they were raised shooting, shooting and trapping things. Uh, and, and then they got a polish of Thompson, that's my fourth of in working in military. So they they've, they've got, they've got these sort of embedded skills that come out. The other thing about it is they were raised in the coast. Their house very, very close to the coast, by one of those enormous Australian teachers. And so they grew up swimming, fishing, diving, which comes in handy in both the original four books and also in particular River of Night, because at a certain point, one of them, uh, at a certain point, Tom Smith ends up in the river, in a very bad situation.
2: That's a great uh, moment. He has to think through all these these. You put him in the absolute worst possible uh, predicament.
3: There's a, there's a thing in writing about uh, do the worst possible thing you can to your character. And I'll say, and I'll just go ahead and give it away, short of killing because at a certain point, you're not sure if he's going to die. Not. Um, and uh, so there is a book called When Eight Spells Toll. Have uh, either of you have ever read it? Uh, Alex Fair McClain, the guy that wrote uh, Guns of
2: Well,
3: I've read, read a couple of his, but not that one. Um, uh, well, Mike, you would love When A bell hole. Uh, but Alistair McLean in his book, I had eventually I eventually read like six or seven Alistair books and liked all of them so much that I decided to sit down and read absolutely you no know, I, I was Alistair, obsessive Alistair McLean for like the only that Tarzan the only thing I've ever been collecting. Uh, um, so I eventually read every single Alistair McLean book. Including the black shrine, which is not only fairly hard to find. There's a reason it's fairly hard to find because, oh my God, it's so much awful. Uh, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, but everybody has one uh, or more. Uh, but
0: when Apel's
3: toll is probably the best of all. Uh, he had a very consistent pattern. Of you would have a Slender, uh, a slender sort of uh, wiry, smart, tall guy as a leader. And then you would have a really massive, strong dude, who also was very smart, was like uh, the one that you guys might know of is Guns of Averro. You had Mallory and Sovereign. Um, and that was Mallory was actually based on thread and um, hmm. but uh in and he did that in several books. And when and the, you find at certain points why the wiry skinny hard guy is a chart. Because he he's that much more tactically uh, proficient. Uh he's the guy that absolutely figured out, even though his sidekick really was to do and really um, but at a certain point, anyway, he has this several different books. He has, uh, Mallory and Scarborough's two different books. And so it's a trope that he writes that there's this. And, but every now and again, it's gotta be the sidekick. It's the big, long, powerful, extremely dangerous guy that pulls everything out. So in, when eight bells toll, like in the third chapter, that guy gets killed. And so the wiry guy, uh the leader guy, uh is is left on his own. And his friends many, many years, they have shared many adventures, saved each other's lives, and dead at the hands of the bad guy. And after that, he's looking for a sunken ship, which has like something on it. I think it was gold. And the people had deliberately sunk the ship, to steal the gold, the And so he's up in a Royal Navy helicopter gets shot down. And he ends up in the North Sea in a crashed helicopter like 30 fathoms, 50 fathoms down uh, in this compressed ball of air, running out of air in freezing cold water that's going to make hypothermia. And so it's like he's in an impossible situation and it's literally one of those things that takes your character to the worst possible his best friend, you know, his best friend and buddy is dead. He's at the bottom of the North Sea. He's screwed. And of course, he comes back. Uh, so I was, I was deliberately thinking about that when I had Tom Smith take the plunge. I, I was mm-hmm. thinking about that moment because, uh, you know, I don't want to give away too much about the book, but uh, a a major character from Under Graveyard Sky and from Valley of Shadows uh in the book. So, uh, Tom Smith has had one of the rocks depends on taken away from him. And now he is in an impossible situation and has to be out. Um, and, yeah, and at the same time, it was so terrible, we almost had to include him. Uh, actually, we did. He included Yeah, we did. He's yeah. I mean, he's like, well, I'm screwed. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just going to follow the process. You know, I understand what to do in this situation, so I am just going to follow the process, even though, well, I'm fucking dead.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well. But, and he would have died if it hadn't been for Frederica. It was Frederica that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's a wonderful moment, and we probably shouldn't say who or what Frederica is, but um, if you know anything about the Tennessee River, you might you might know it's authentic.
3: Just understand she's got feet lit. <laughs> <laughs>
4: that's, that's kind of a Tennessee thing, but sure, I'll go with the river thing. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, so let's talk a little bit about the book um in uh in as in terms of characters um so we have tom uh he is he's leading this group across the eastern u i guess he's going through pennsylvania to west virginia and then down that's the plan at least right and why is he doing this and what's the purpose of of it uh, John, should I take that this one? I thought he came across from
4: Virginia. He did.
2: Yeah. yeah so the uh,
4: the notion it. is that Tom, dur- during the during the fall, which didn't happen all at once, uh, Tom was responsible for establishing a plan for his bank, as other big organizations did for their corporations and their their business interests. How are we going to survive this? How do we come back from this? And so he established four long term. Uh, refuges where his, his key staff and some of their families could tie it over in a position of relative safety until the rule of law was reestablished and infrastructure came back to a point where it was safe to be in a major city or even a, a medium sized city again. And one of those four sites called Site Blue or, um, for the Blue Ridge Mountains is located in the Cumberland Valley, the southern edge, the southern end of the Cumberland Valley, which runs sort of northeast to southwest. Uh, the latter part running through the southern part of Tennessee. And so when he escapes New York, as readers of the Valley of Shadow will recall, they run their boat south, fuel up a little bit, run further south, and they make it to a, uh, a hastily prepared uh, safe house. And safe doesn't mean you're actually safe there. It stands for the acronym Selected Area for Evasion. I borrowed from my uh, my training and my practice when I was in active duty. And when, they, when, when pilots get shot down, they're trained to go look for the safe. Again, not where you're safe, but where you're going to try to evade because the conditions are favorable, or the least unfavorable in this case, for intermediate uh, duration survival.
2: Right. That, it's in, it's in Norf, Norfolk, right? It's where it is.
4: Up, up the Charles River. And, uh, and they hide out what amounts to a, a sort of a, um, a cabin, if you will, well off the main road, well away from the main drag, like the 264 uh, and the main drag in and out of Newport News from uh, from Richmond, because uh, that's a major corridor. And having traveled that during a con weekend, it's just two lanes in and two lanes out. One person gets a flat tire, everybody stops. So any you know, that kind of region is going to mean you can't travel. You shouldn't be trying to travel when everybody else is still trying to get out. And by the time the immediate carnage has largely subsided the lack of available targets, um, those roads are going to be wholly impassable. So the rate of travel, this is a key factor throughout the book, the rate of travel to go just a few hundred miles, it goes from hours we would expect now or you know, a day in heavy traffic on the 95, it goes to weeks or even longer because you're going to be backtracking constantly. You're not going to have the benefit of GPS and real-time intelligence on where the bad traffic is. Uh, you may not have paper maps. You may run into resistance. You may run into other survivors that don't trust you or won't trust you. And so these guys have to make their way from the coast inland in more or less a straight line overall, but very much backing and filling, two steps forward, one step back, to make it to this area called this this base, if you will, called Site Blue. And uh, I'm not going to give a whole lot away, but along the way, not only do they have uh, what I'll call loosely adventures, but uh, they have flat-out obstacles that they have to surmount or go around or retreat from.
2: The I mean we could talk a little bit about it because some of it's in the descriptive copy <laughs> on, on the uh there is um although the zombies are a problem, um some of the worst things that they're going to run into are um the people who have survived and are or or are, are organizing in a in an unfriendly way.
4: Yeah, so in my in my imagination and uh in in concert with John IDing together and then putting together some scenarios, we really you know, there's a really famous um big name T V show that I won't name um that we're not really fond of because they constantly require the the person who's watching the show to accept that these survivors who have somehow made it through all these problems are still getting on be- despite their crazy, illogical, incompetent choices. And so I realized to hey, anybody that makes it through the first two or three months, whether they're a good guy or a bad guy, they're going to be more than borderline competent. They're going to be flat-out competent. And in this case, um, uh, Smith and his crew run into a group which is both competent and organized and not altruistic. And that's how we meet uh, the first of our really serious bad guys His name is Harlan Green. And and Harlan is uh is very much um very much the villain of the story. He's not an antihero, but he he's not just being casually cruel, although he's capable of cruelty and, and in fact enjoying it, but he has a plan and he really believes that his plan in the long run isn't just better for him, and he's gonna make damn sure that it is, it's more or less better for everybody that's survived so far. It's not going to be a democracy, and that's okay. Maybe democracy is a flawed approach, or a republic, if you will, is a flawed approach. But he's not going to copy those mistakes. And he's been surviving on the ground for three and a half months by the time he runs into Smith. Smith and his group have been hiding in a cabin for three and a half months. So who's going to know conditions better? Who's going to have a larger force? Who's going to be more mobile? Well, it's probably not going to be Smith. So, we, you know, it's an early example of uh, John and I placing our uh, protagonist, one of our POV characters, in a really untenable situation, and how do you deal with it?
2: Yeah. Well, Green has – tell us a little bit about this – the methodology he used, which is kind of sick, and at the same time highly effective, um, to put together his gleaners, who are really – they're more like looting killer rapists, but anyway –
4: Well, yeah. So he he starts. You know, when the when the uh, the, when the fires first strikes, uh, Green, who's hyper intelligent and capable, and has a background in hacking and entrepreneurial finance and and some freelance, not so legal stuff, uh, he realizes really early that it's not happenstance; that it's an attack. And because he's an excellent analyst, he figures out very early what major newspapers take a long time to realize and report. Which is, this isn't just an attack. This isn't a successful attack that just hasn't finished running its course yet. So if I want to survive, I'm going to have to do things like get myself some vaccine and put together a crew. But it can't be any old crew. i got to find the right people. they got to be right. And so he goes through a – and I won't bog us down in detail unless you ask. I'm happy to go deeper. But he figures out how to recruit uh actual convicts by – Looking using his uh, tech skills, his computer skills, to search for the profile of incarcerated convicts that he can use. And then much the same way uh, that uh, in the movie um, The Dark Knight, when the Joker has his, his uh, auditions, if you will, he says, oh, there's three of you, huh? Well, here's, here's three weapons, and I'm going to recruit you onto my team, but I've only got one spot. You guys figure it out. Winner take all. And that's sort of his approach. So not only does he get a hardened con, but he gets a committed con is also very capable and sort of man or a woman of their hands, which is what he needs at first. And that's going to be a problem for Green later on, because while you need bugs initially, because you need shock and awe and a violence and a strong stomach, eventually you got to build a civilization. And So later on, he realizes that and he tries to shift his recruiting a bit, which becomes interesting for a character um, that uh, fans of John's. Series were we'll recognized from the very first book, Under a Gray Bear Sky, uh, a police officer named Jason Young. Um, if I can uh,
3: do, a, do a digress real quick, uh, it, it's not really a digress, more or less about the writing process, if you will. Uh, I had uh, previously envisioned a completely different global disaster, which involved pairing. Um, And I actually ran through that scenario an awful lot. And unfortunately, it was just so god-awful grim that I decided to do it. I could not figure out a way for there to be anything particularly positive about it at all. Um, So, But in that, I at one point had a character who had very, very quickly looked at the situation. And a Carrington event is a a solar flare it's called a, a coronal mass ejection. And if it hits the earth, if a massive solar flare hits the earth at a particular angle, what it essentially does is it breaks the electromagnetic magnetic field. And the electromagnetic field sort of does this like a like a swing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. This creates enormous what's called ground induction on anything which is conductive, any metal conductive. and so what you have is huge electrical surge through your primary power system um, the last time it happened was I remember 56 or 59 and back then the only thing you had was telegraph and in, in terms of electronic technology and they had to disconnect the batteries from the telegraph because the telegraphs were overheating and Sending these tremendous charges uh, through the telegraph, so they just ran the telegraphs without any battery power. So one of the places Tesla probably got the idea that you could draw electricity out of the air. Um, but the, the Transcontinental Railroad welded in places there was so much electricity. Well, if that hit us now, um, people are like, you know, if we got hit by a carriage event, it would be 18 months before they could fix the trans, uh transformer get them back up. Well, to fix the transformers, you have to have transformers. And it will blow out every primary trans- transformer in the world. So we will have no electric power. Uh, we will have no cell phones. Forget internet. I mean, everything will thoroughly crash. At which point, civilization just collapsed. Uh, famine hits. very very uh, There's no light. There's no power. There's no food. There's no water. Uh-huh. So I I started to write this book and or I, I, I ideated this many many times thought about it and there was no way for me to do it other than very grim and some of the places that I went were really gone awful and one of them was a character that I never named he was just called the White Hand Scarum and he was he was the guy who looked at the situation. much people. Too many people. And so in this very a technological environment, he set up a death camp uh, that was designed to catch refugees and slaughter them at mass. Um, and a certain amount of hand wavy him about being able to actually do that. But he had to be just got off. Because this whole thing is, we've got to kill as many people as possible. And that was not how he phrased. It was just about polluting and the raping and killing. People. No. But he was actually, from his perspective, uh, in one of the ideations, I had him actually write like a, a note for posterity to say, I'm not going to tell you who I am. I'm not going to tell you what I am. But this is not the person that I was. I looked at the situation clearly, and the only choice was to kill as many people as possible if if the rest of the nation had any change. Um, so, I mentioned that to Mike talked about it a little bit. I don't know if you remember. Uh, but uh, we talked about it a little bit. And so that was the basis, the original basis of Harlan Green. So, Harlan Green is both a really nasty bad guy, and at a certain level, and in the book, I didn't really get it that clearly. But at a certain level, he's not necessarily the worst of all possible from his perspective, it's about, okay, I've got to be really nasty right now. Maybe back off. on. And the original character, he was like, at a certain point, I'm just going to betray everybody, make sure that they all die, and I'm either going to commit suicide or <laughs> um,
2: Well, that's pretty grim.
3: Harley Green is a really nasty guy. He really, really is. Uh, and he is more his background is being an Anyway,
2: I mean, he retains that, uh, that characteristic of thinking that he is acting as a sort of a force of nature that ha- is doing what needs to be done, though, right?
4: Right. He does, and, and he, oh. he's really good at disassembling everybody else's rationalizations and pointing out, you're, you know, you rationalize. I was taking it a few steps further. What makes me wrong and you right?
2: Yeah, well, I like it when this bullshit's finally called. But that's not—we won't talk about that because that's the climax. <laughs>
3: we actually, were, we actually were first forced to edit it down a little bit. Probably good, but uh, yeah, at a certain point, Tom is just done with the bullshit. He's just—he—he's done. You know, it's yeah. one of the lines. That, that that was mine, and I don't even know if it needed the final book because I haven't read the final book yet, is what part of special air service was unclear.
2: Yeah, that's in there. <laughs> yeah, I just read it. Um, so uh, backtrack a little bit on the technology, if you will, um, which I found really interesting was the, the short uh, exposition on uh, GPS and what happens to GPS and uh why they why they couldn't rely on it but it it was still sort of there
4: so that, uh, in that? John's uh universe GPS is still available uh to and as are the uh the satellites that transmit em- emergency position location for um lifeboats and so forth and in in the real world um satellite uh Move, adjust an orbit, whether they want the two or not. They're affected by gravitational um, uh, attraction from other things besides just the Earth. And so, because they work on a very precise uh, measurement of time, when they depart from their, um, what I'm to characterize as their orbit, it's a very rough word, proper term is ephemeris, uh, the human operators at one of the master ground stations has to apply a correction to keep the answer that's solved by the uh, the uh algorithm on board the, the satellite and reporting to the receiver, which is the thing you hold in your hand or have in your car, uh it, and it measures the time so precisely, it can tell you exactly where you are, but it needs multiple satellites. And if the satellites aren't getting updated, then at some point they're going to degrade. Um, some lower quality GPS receivers really rely on having several accurate, satellites that are in Robin, to call view within line of sight in order to give you a decent fix or your position. Um, military grade and some more expensive consumer or all characterizes um, um, a factory grade, if you will, you know, for, for working ships and working airplanes have access to somewhat more sophisticated ways of manipulating the signal and giving you a reasonable fix. Um, in this novel, we find out that the GPS is working sort of, but they're not. One of the problems with a commercial grade receiver, what you would get, you know, from the local hardware store, or from Radio Shack, is that instead of telling you what the problem is, if it's not getting a decent answer out of a satellite, it just ignores the satellite. So you don't have either you get a good answer or you get no answer. And that drives our uh, protagonists to relying more and more on paper maps, although we're still using GPS. But again, GPS is not. It's going to be updated the way that, say, um, a very popular mapping service on your handheld phone is because there's no one telling it, no one updating that these roads are out or there's a traffic stop here or that there's a, a roadblock there. So just because you have a sense for where you are doesn't tell you how long it's going to take to get to where you want to be.
2: Yeah, it was. It was. I. I had never. You know. I thought it was really fascinating and handled adroitly and quickly. The uh, your explanation in the book. Um, there's a lot of just cool tech things that you have to consider when you're writing a book like this, right?
4: There is. So um, I, I cheated. Uh, first, I had John to consult with, and second, I did. You know, I do this professionally, so uh, on the on the unclassified, uh, I've had a lot of exposure to sort of the what of Around corporate and, um, national level resilience. And, you know, we, we continue to become more and more invested in so much of our technology in almost every application on precise geolocation. And that's one of the easiest things to deny us because the, the, um, the satellites that give us this capability are a relatively few in number, less than 40 or so satellites in the highly Uh, Observable and well understood orbits, uh, that are easy, relatively speaking, to interdict for a peer or near peer level nation. And, uh, you don't have to destroy the satellite or actually physically damage it in terms of like a kinetic strike in order to keep it from working at the peak of, uh, efficiency that's required to give you that nice precise location. So it's an interesting, an interesting question. Uh, I don't want to digress here, but there's some interesting ideas evolving now about how to replace you know, what does the next generation of GPS constellation look like? Does it look like thirty or forty really big expensive satellites, or does it look like thousands of smaller ones, so so large in number that you can't efficiently degrade um precise geolocation capabilities fast enough to get a, a jump on the on your target, wherever your target might be? That that's remember this just um, happens in the early twenty teens. Sorry, go ahead, back to you, John. Well twenty
3: twelve actually, I think. Um, uh, When I was looking at GPS, because GPS was very important um, from the point of view of the original four books because you had a large number of boats at sea. And at sea, you've got one or two choices. You've got three choices. Um, You have what's called LORAN, which is a system that takes uh, ground stations that are transmitting Signal and it it triangulates the signal says okay you're you're approximately here. Corin never um, You have uh, traditional celestial navigation which only works if you've got relatively the sky uh, and requires a certain amount of math and knowledge of specifically of spherical trigonometry. Uh, or you've got GPS. And so I did a hand-wavium that GPS still Because the alternatives were that you had a whole bunch of boats, never rendezvous, would never have any any freaking idea where they were. Um, you could not tell anybody else. They found a boat that they needed help clearing. Um, they couldn't call somebody else. we would help because nobody would know where they were. So I did a hand-wavium that GPS still worked. Um Afterwards, I, I talked some people. Uh, Mike is much more knowledgeable about the people than I am. Um, but uh, I'm knowledgeable about some stuff. Um, uh, I, I, just had to, I just had to avoid it. Um, military grade is certainly going to stay up for quite a long time. And because I did a hand wave, instead of it being based on certain things, it could shift others. Um, and so there was one base that was still functioning. And I had it that that base was what was keeping the GPS up. Um, that does not actually work. But what does work is uh, other uh, groups that survive can collaborate with that base to keep the GPS um, So how GPS is working is, first of all, it's hand wave, And Second, there's a distinct possibility that even in something this severe, there would be multiple groups working who were survivors the GPS functioning because it was so important to so many people. That's yeah. True. Well, uh, this a plays
2: reasons. into the...
3: with quick, article on that. Go
2: ahead. This plays into the plot, right?
3: The other thing about it is that back in uh, 2003, I think it was, uh there was a blue ribbon commission panel on uh space war and space defense and et cetera. And it was a it was chaired by Rumsfeld. Um, he wasn't on it all the time, but it was, you know, very serious Pentagon people and civilian people looking at very serious questions about space. Near near space, satellites, uh anti-satellite folks, et cetera, et cetera. And they had virtually completed the whole thing. Lieutenant Colonel kind of, you know, said, hey, you know, we haven't really asked anybody who does science fiction about this. And so they said, well, you know, let's, let's see if we can find, if you can find science fiction authors to give a few comments just before he finishes the whole thing. You know, before he finish the whole thing, that's great. Go ahead. go Go take a look at it, Colonel. And so the colonel contacted uh, Bane Books because uh, he was a fan. And uh, Bane had me, David Drake, um, an author whose name I can't forget, and he wrote like one or two books for Bane. He hasn't been around. I think uh, Van, uh, The other, another one I think was uh, Van. You know who I'm talking about, it's David Drake?
2: Oh, Mark Van Name, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: I, I think Mark Van Name was in on this. But I know it was me and Drake. Other author who read a couple of books. Here.
2: Yeah. Was that together? Yeah, I know who it is. It's the. Anyway, go ahead.
3: Uh, yeah, he'd written a book about hackers save the planet. Uh, anyway, each of us wrote up a little write up about what we were looking at. And my whole thing was uh, we're totally dependent on GPS, and GPS is easy as hell to uh, And I went through like five or six scenarios whereby you don't even have to hit it. Um, there's there's ways to do fairly good EMP simple damage. Um and we got back from the uh from the kernel, thank you for all of your input. Uh we looked at it and they've decided that they're going to essentially restart the blue the panel. we had. To... Uh <laughs> so I've been touching around the edges of this for a while.
2: The fact that GPS is uh, is not entirely reliable plays into the plot because um, this leads Tom to write things down on maps. Well, one of those maps uh, falls into the hands of Harlan Green, right?
4: Yeah, the uh, Tom and his uh, his group of stalwarts and some not so stalwarts are making their way westward towards Site blue. Um, like you do, it's taking much longer than they had expected in their most pessimistic estimates. And, uh, among the things that they, they need, um, most of all, what they need are, is information, uh, and, and more maps as they go. But they have a, what I'll call a, a meeting engagement with one of the, uh, outriding patrols of the gleaners, so called, because they, they pick over what's left after the fall of civilization and, and keep what's worth keeping. And, uh, they, they've been very careful not to rely on, on digital maps. I mean, And for that matter, digital maps are fine. They can be very helpful. They, you can do some extraordinary things with network communications and passing details back and forth. But when it comes to basic land navigation, especially um, um, large-scale, in other words, small, detailed areas, paper maps or physical maps are really, really helpful, which is why they're still in use. Uh, they don't need batteries. Uh, They're easy to mark up, etc. But that means that if you lose one and you've marked things on it, important things like where you're going next and what you're going to find there, uh, then you've literally (laughs) left a map for the bad guys to follow up. And that becomes quite a problem and drives a lot of the action in the second half of the book because Green, who's no slouch, immediately understands what he's looking at. And he's not just looking at Oh, here's some unexpected places where there's caches of valuable items. No, worse than that. Wait a second, I've got a second organized group that has a plan, that has some skills, maybe a lot of skills, that is in more than one place and has competing goals. Okay, this cannot be allowed to persist. And so uh quite apart from the the uh the sting to both sides of that of that military or pseudo military, paramilitary engagement, now you have a uh Green, who has, definitely has the upper hand in almost every category of uh, in the correlation of force, and he now has it in his best interest to find these folks that he ran into, or that his leaners ran into, and um, get them off the playing board.
2: He knows exactly where they're going, or at least he knows pretty much exactly what the plan is. He, into, he, he analyzes it and figures it out.
3: Uh, Green has built up a much larger force. Uh, uh, but towards the end of the book, what's clear is, while Green is capable, some of his work is fairly capable. Uh, it, it's a large force, but it's not a capable. Uh, and so, towards the end of the book, this large force runs into capable. uh And it shows the value of capability over uh, especially when you start talking about pissing off electric.
2: Yeah, and and the value of of grit and being good instead of evil, and things like that. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, altruistic, that sort of thing. Uh,
3: yeah. But but a big aspect of it is uh,
2: you know the
3: the final the, the two the big clash at the end of the book involves. You know, a, a group that is a believers in freedom and all of that, stuff, and which is important from the point of view of morale, uh, versus uh, a sort of driven conscript group. Um, but more importantly than that, it involves a lot of people who have a lot of background in uh, tactics, and it also involves a lot of people who are very very smart and have thought the situation out. And it especially involves, uh, some electrical engineers and electricians who have got access to a 30,000, a 30 megawatt power plant. Um, it, I, some of the, some of the stuff got edited, so I don't know exactly what they did. was. Um, but, uh, the thing about it is the electrical industry is a constant source of, of industrial act. Uh, deadly industrial act And so any electrician, any electrical engineer with any experience whatsoever has an enormous list of ways that they know of people have died. And so if you have a situation where you, you have a large number of people who have to die, the person to go to is an electrical engineer because they'll
4: just say, well, give me enough electricity and I can um, go <laughs> One of the great quotes that John put in there is uh, one of the operators at this electrical plant uh, is warning new arrivals away from large swaths of land around the dam, and they go, "What's? I mean, have you mined it? Are there explosives?" And she says, "No, it's it's one big series of industrial accidents waiting to happen. You know, besides, I'm I'm an engineer with 30 megawatts of power. Explosives would be redundant." <laughs>
2: All right. Thank you guys so much. We'll talk. Bye.
1: That was part one of a two-part interview with John Ringo and Mike Massa authors of River of Night. Part 2 will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book 1 in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts, Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made casteless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black
0: Sword. Chapter 32 Ashok spent a few days down in the dark hole. It suited his mood. His quarters were a hidden compartment on the barge. It had been cleverly designed by criminals for smuggling goods and people. There was a trapdoor that opened directly into the river for drinking, washing, and dumping waste, and plenty of air holes for just enough light to see by. Ashok wondered how many lawbreakers had escaped him over the years because of his hesitancy to go onto the water. It wasn't as if protectors didn't know river traffic existed. It was vital for trade, but it was so distasteful that he'd always thought of it as business best left to the castless. The constant rocking still made him uncomfortable, but he was used to it by now. The wounds from the arrows had already healed. The poison had been purged from his system. He could have gone out into the daylight, but Ashok was content to stay in the hidden room, alone, mostly. Keita, the so-called Keeper of Names, had paid him a few visits. He'd spout some nonsense about praying for the Forgotten's blessings and mad prophecies, but Ashok ignored him until he went away. The woman brought him food consisting of rice and fish. He was castless, so it was appropriate fare. But he gagged whenever he tried to put the ocean garbage in his mouth, and ended up picking the fish out. After the first few times, she'd quit bringing him that unclean filth. Other than that, the woman seemed content not to talk. He'd only learned her name, Thera, because of Keita's continual babblings. The barge was a large one, heavy with cargo, and he only knew the rest of the crew by the sound of their never-ending songs. The castles avoided him. Whether out of fear or because they'd been ordered to, Ashok didn't know or care. Days and nights bled together. Ashok didn't know how long he'd been on the river. It was like he'd traded one prison cell for another, only this one was humid and mobile. He had orders, straight from the chief judge, that he was to make his way to Akashan. But the barge was heading south, deeper into the interior, so even by sitting here, he was still doing as he was told. The law was still being upheld. It was a strange thing, upholding the law by breaking it. One night, someone opened the secret door and poked their head in. In the dark, he could barely tell it was the woman, Thera. He still didn't know what she looked like. Come with me. He'd been ordered to obey the false prophet, not every petty criminal. No. Fine, you smug bastard. We're landing soon. Stay down here and let the warriors find you for all I care. She climbed back up the ladder. Oceans. Ashok waited a moment and then followed her. It was the first time he'd been outside since being pulled from the river. The night air was crisp, and it felt good to fill his lungs with something that didn't stink of mold. Ashok glanced around. Lanterns were mounted on each corner of the barge, both to light their way and also so other barges could see them. The castlers were still poling, though there was a stutter in their rhythm as some of them spotted him and stopped to stare. There were lights on both sides of them, small villages along the banks. The river was very wide here, which meant they had to be close to Red Lake. He'd crossed plenty of rivers in his life, But it was a little uncomfortable being on a few pieces of lashed-together timber in the middle of so much water. He couldn't help but reach for his sword to confirm that it was still there. Easy there, Protector. There's no demons below us. We're a long ways from the sea now, Thera said. I know where we are. She was hunched over, rummaging through a crate. Then you know we're getting off soon. No locks into thou lands, and you can't hardly pole a barge up waterfalls. From here on, we ride, but we won't get anywhere with you looking like that. The only clothing he had left was a burned, blood-stained pair of prison-issued pants. I'm castless. This is sufficient. Not carrying that sword around, it's not. Keita joined them. The Keeper of Names leaned on the railing next to Ashok, seemingly unafraid of falling into the river. If we're to make it to Akashan safely, you'll need to blend in. Castless can't have weapons, and they can't freely cross house borders. Not to mention, you'll get frostbite where we're going. I'll be fine, Keeper. The tallest mountains of Thau were hills compared to the Order's training grounds in Devacula. And really, who cared if an untouchable froze his nose off? No, you won't. We need you to avoid notice, Ashok, can you do that for us, please? In truth, he had no more desire for conflict either. Ashok nodded. All right. I have some things you can wear, Thera said as she shifted through the contents of the crate. You're about the same size as this barge's last overseer. What happened to him? One of your orders suspected him of smuggling and stabbed him in the heart. Was he guilty? Yes, but that's besides the point. Here you go. Thera pulled out a bundle of clothing and handed it over. It was the first time he'd ever seen her in the light. Large, dark eyes and a face that was a bit too round to be considered beautiful among the first cast, but she was still rather attractive. For a criminal. Don't put them on yet. You'll need to look castless until I get our new papers. Ashok took the clothes from her. They felt sturdy and well made. He held the long coat up to the torchlight. The canvas sleeves bore a green worker's insignia, specifically that of the merchant subcast. I can't wear this. Sure you can. Thera touched the same insignia on her sleeve. For a woman, Thera's clothing was remarkably drab in color and cut. I've got a man in Apura who can forge traveling papers to match, and even say you're authorized to carry a sword to defend yourself from highwaymen. Easier than trying to hide that thing, and sheathed, it looks normal enough. I figure if you have to pull that evil creation out for the world to see, we've got worse problems than getting caught with fake documents. Fake documents. Ashok trailed off. Forging an Arbiter's stamp was punishable by death. It took all of his self-control not to strike her down on the spot. Keita reached out to place a calming hand on Ashok's arm, but then he saw the dark look on his face and must have thought better of it. Logically, Ashok knew that he was no longer Ostatus and that he and Keita were equal nobodies. But he wasn't used to being touched...
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to the podcast-themed composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a Tesla-coil tower on Mount Elbert in Colorado, useful for zapping any HR department lackey who uses diversity and inclusion talk as an excuse for shutting up troublesome geniuses with retro bikini models on their shirts, but whose cockamamie ideas for solving logistics just might work and save the world in the process? Plus, thanks and plaudits for John Ringo and Mike Massa, authors of *River of Night*. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.